Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined all the way from Australia by Julie Randall, a cancer survivor, author, and motivational speaker. Her story has been featured on 60 Minutes Australia, and she has devoted her second chance at life to helping others find hope. Just over 10 years ago, Julie was told she had only months to live. Yet, in her mind, she took this not as final truth, but as a challenge. And she's here today to tell her story of survival and courage. It's my pleasure to welcome Julie to Grace Moments today. Julie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Catherine. I'm looking forward to our chat. Let's begin this interview with life before the C word entered the picture. Um, what were you like as a person? What things were important to you? What did you do? Um, okay, so we're talking BC. Yes, <laughs> I love it, yes. Okay, so I was a fit and healthy woman, hmm. so I thought just about to turn 50 and I was kind of struggling with that. Um, looking back now, that was the least of my worries, but at the time that was like, oh, you know, the big 5-0. So I went so far as to call it my 40-tenth on my, on my birthday invitations <laughs> and um, thought I was really clever and funny, you know. And uh, But around that time I was a happy, healthy woman, husband, two kids, you know, or 2.5 children, as I say, with a dog living on the northern beaches of Sydney in Australia, which is so beautiful. And I just thought I had it all and um, very sporty, very fit. Uh, around this time, I was training for a high-level touch football tournament even though I was turning 50, I was um, training for an over 45s touch football tournament. So nothing inside of me felt that I wasn't well. Hmm. So I go to work after I came to terms with turning 50, had my party. I go to work four days later, driving along. So I worked in, in the city of Sydney. And I was driving along thinking, practicing gratitude. You know, it was a beautiful winter's day back. It was June, so winter for us. And I distinctly remember it was the 21st of June, 2012. And I was driving along thinking how lucky I was and thanking the universe for everything that, you know, I had and beautiful world. And, yeah, I was on my way to work. And then I go to work and go out for lunch with my work colleagues and I'm like, how good is life? We go down to Sydney Harbour, had a beautiful lunch, go back to work. A colleague asked me what I'd had for lunch and I stared at him. I couldn't answer him. He motioned for me to sit down, then my world just went, yeah, out, you know, the world went black, mm. gone. When you got that first diagnosis, stage four, melanoma, essentially a death sentence, I'm sure you were shocked. Take us back to that moment, if you don't mind, and just walk us through your thoughts and emotions. Yeah, of course. Um, it's kind of a little bit... <laughs> You find out something, then you find out something else, and then you find out something else. But that particular day I was, um, I, I woke up in my workplace and my head was hanging down. I'd had a massive brain seizure hmm. in my workplace, in the office, and I just, my head was hanging down and I'm, I, I came to and I just heard my name being called over and over again, Julie, 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 you know, they were, they were trying to get me to come to mm -hmm. and um then finally you know I lift my head up and I I look over and all my work colleagues are like standing there with their jaws almost dropping to the ground so I must have I still to this 
this day, Catherine, I haven't asked what I was doing. Still to this day, like I must have been fitting pretty badly. Mm-hmm. And they were all just staring and, the, and and paramedics were there and they're just calling my name and I could see their shoes. I could mm-hmm. see their shoes and I could see their uniforms and I thought, what the hell? Like they, I knew there were paramedics there. And um, finally, bit by bit, I lift my head. They take me away to emergency and uh you know just like that my world changed forever that day forever Mm. and so I go to the hospital Uh, they do tests they find something on my brain uh, which was kind of no surprise however they said uh, you know it could be a non-malignant something or other and like my husband's like yeah you've just had a birthday party and you've been really busy and you know you're just tired I'm like in my heart of hearts in my gut I'm like I knew it wasn't just that you just so said something that, was wrong yeah so that that day a doctor says you know we found something on your brain 24 hours later we wait 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 and the doctor doctor comes to my bed and he has two interns either side of him and I see them coming towards me and I'm like I wanted to like rewind the tape because the look on their face and they just he just stood up my bed and he said Julie uh you have tumors in your brain both lungs liver pancreas lymph nodes I'm sorry you know you have stage four malignant cancer. And with that, at this stage, I don't know if this is melanoma, by the way, um, and with that I jump out of bed, get hospital gown on, whole bit, my husband's still sitting there, you know, trying to take it all in, and I just run. And people say, where are you running? And I say, for the hills. <laughs> I didn't know where I was running, but I just didn't want to hear anymore. Like within 24 hours of being fit and healthy, like shocked into, you know. And so that that was that part of it. And then so you can imagine how I felt like I'm like, no, this cannot be real. I just cannot fathom this. It's just not real. And then I had to basically go home and, and my husband chased me and get in a car. I tell this story because it's just so prominent. I drive through the city of Sydney. It's a Friday night. Everyone's out having fun and partying, drinking, welcoming the weekend, and I'm like, how can you do this? I'm practising how to tell my children their mother's dying. You know, I was rehearsing in my mind, and um, it, it, it was surreal and... Yeah, as I say, it took a while to find out exactly what type of cancer it was. Did the thought of death scare you at all? You know what? It's really, it's a really interesting thing because I've recently lost my sister, which is the saddest thing in the world, but Mm. we both battled, or, you know, I don't like to use the word battled, but we both went through this and both of us, once you have got those kids, it's not it's not the death that scares you. It's the carnage that you will leave behind that's that scares you. The death is kind of a second fiddle. But it's there. It's there. I'd be lying if I did if I said it wasn't there, but it, it is like a second fiddle. Yeah. When a lot of people would still be reeling from something so stunning you fairly quickly made up your mind that you were going to fight to live, um, that you would defy the odds. You told your girls you would find a way to survive. What caused or allowed you to take such a proactive approach following the news? When I talk about that night when I found out that what, what the deal was, um, so I drive home, we drive home, we get home and my girls knew something had happened at work. I mean, they, they'd been to the hospital and um, obviously thinking, you know, hoping, oh, it's just 
some trivial thing that's happened to mum. And I walk into the house and I remember that the house didn't even feel like my home anymore and Mm -hmm. that everything felt different. And I walk up the stairs and go to my bedroom because I'm like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. So I go upstairs and up the stairs and I could hear the footsteps coming up to my bedroom. Mm. And I knew when you're a mother, you know even by your footsteps which child it is. (laughs) And I could feel that, okay, so this is Morgan. This is my eldest. She's coming. I can hear her. So she walks into the bedroom and, um, sorry, I get really emotional. Mm. And I I said, Morgan, I'm sorry, I have cancer. And she she wails, no, mum, no, mum, over and over again. And then I hear more footsteps, and that's my other daughter who's less demonstrative, and um, she just puts her head in my neck and, silently sobbed and I just couldn't I couldn't bear their agony and their pain so I just went I'll fix it I'll fix this Hmm. I'm gonna find a way and um I just promised them I'm I'm gonna make it I'm not gonna die um and in the moment you know I had a little mind monster in my head saying how are you going to do that? Good luck with that. You know how we have our inner little, lovely little thoughts in our mind. So, but the way I justified that is that I just thought, look, if if I if I don't make this, I want them to know that I have done everything humanly possible to stay with them on this earth, and. Um, that's what started this crazy journey to stay alive. One of the aspects of your story that fascinating me is your unwillingness to accept that diagnosis as final. And it makes me realize how many things just in general in our life that we take as final and fatal truth that really are only so if we allow them to be. How is that approach benefited you in other areas of your life look Catherine in so many ways that's um it really was you know a 50 year old awakening that the thoughts the limiting beliefs all of those things that we have and believe are true and real in many, many cases, are absolutely not. Um, That, you know, what happened to me, for me, is like when I made this promise, I had to, um, I'm like, okay, what, like I had to go on chemotherapy because that was all we had here in Australia. That's, that, that was it and that was if I was lucky, that was a time buyer. And I think the drug that was offered to me had something like a 5 to 10% chance of even working, of even me responding, let alone time. Anyway, I ended up going on um, a tri- two together, like a trial chemotherapy. Everything was a trial for me. It just kind of worked out that way. So I did that. But Along the way, I knew that was going to stop working. So I'm like trying to search for somebody who had said, I wanted a mentor, I wanted a hero, I wanted somebody who that I could look up to and aspire to and go, I'm going to be like that. And there was no one. Mm. There was not one soul in the world that I could find that had survived that diagnosis. Um, and at the time, that was pretty much from what I can gather, the truth. Like 
if there was one or two, I couldn't find them. Um, and so I kind of had this epiphany that, well, you know what? There's always got to be a first. There's got to be someone. And Julie, you're it. Mm-hmm. You, wanna, you have to be your own hero, your own mentor. You have to lead the way for other people, like huge. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I that's what I did. And I mean, if we want to fast forward and we can and we can backtrack to some of the story, but what happened to me was like I lay in the dark, you know, in the chemotherapy days, lost all my hair, went into menopause because one of the drugs was a like a breast cancer drug and um had no idea that was gonna happen. So I'm sweating and not sleeping and thinking about my pending death and all the rest of it. And I lay in the dark and I said a prayer to Mrs. Universe and, you know, or God or whatever you want to call as your spiritual person. And I said, hey, if you help me get through this, I promise, and I've already made this promise to my children about living, so it was lots of promises, and I said, I promise I will write a book to inspire others. I promise I will get on stage and I don't care how many people and I will inspire them and I will, you know, all these big promises. When the truth was I I didn't. I don't think I passed English in my last school exam <laughs> and to the thought of getting up in front of a lot of people, like I was frightened of my own shadow when it came to that. So I'm making these big, bold promises and um, it turns out, you know, hopping forward that I did survive and then I had to keep those promises as well. And just about what you talk, what you, what you were talking about before, you get the resistance, the full-on resistance because your mind wants to keep you safe mm-hmm. and it doesn't understand one thing from another or from being in a cave and eaten by a tiger or whatever, anything that's getting you out of that comfort zone, um, stretching you, your mind's like, no, you don't want to do that. You know, you're not good at that. Come on, come on. And it, it, I didn't realise that prior to my journey and I started working that out. Like I'm like, okay, not everything your mind tells you, not every belief is real, mm-hmm. you know. And basically this has led me to writing a book that's become a best-selling international mm. book. Like, I mean, I would never have done that. Mm-hmm. In, in my prior life, I would have never, I get on stage, I talk, I don't care if there's 2,000 people now. Um, and my mind will still say to me, what if you fall over? What if you forget what you're going to say? And I go, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's okay. We've got this, you know, come on. And I kind of talk to my mind like it's like those thoughts, like they're another person. Mm-hmm. And I just go, come along, we're going to have a good time, you know. And, um, yeah, big, big learning curve, big mm-hmm. learning curve. But it's been amazing and I love to teach that now. Something that struck me about you is how you were determined and desperate enough for healing and for answers that you were willing to think outside the box, to search outside your own country of Australia, even in order to figure out a way to get well. You found this clinic in Portland, Oregon that offered an alternative experimental treatment, but obviously the slots were full. But again, you kept knocking on the proverbial door. You kept asking the clinic if there was room for one more. And eventually they relented. They let you into the treatment trial. And that's what ultimately saved your life. How important is it for anybody who is seeking healing on any level to be willing to think outside the box in order to get well? Oh, I mean, absolutely crucial. It's it's crucial that you take your life into your hands literally Mm -hmm. and that's not saying don't listen to doctors you have to listen to doctors um well you don't have to but I think the holistic approach is absolutely crucial um 
get definitely get more than one opinion. But you know, like the world's your oyster with in terms of like the internet and what's going on in other parts of the world. And so much is going on. And so many people have said to me, oh wow, like I just wouldn't have done that. Like I wouldn't have kind of thought, it's like really? Like it's your life. It's your life. And it's mm-hmm. like I've just become a grandmother. Like I have a little granddaughter and I'm like, wow. That may not have happened if I didn't just, I, I just got a one-track mind. I'm like, I saw this clinical trial, I looked it up, I found it, and I'm like, that's where I need to be. That's And I just wouldn't, you know, let them off the hook. As arrogant as that might sound, I didn't care because this was for my daughters. So I just hammered them, <laughs> like, for three and a half months. It took me three and a half months to get them to say yes and their final sort of no was like it's full, the trial's full, there's 70 patients, can't take any more, the drug company won't allow us to take any more. And I just didn't let go. I just went, well, I don't accept that because just because I'm not, you know, and it's like you're not an American citizen. Well, I'm sorry, I can't help that. I'm not going to die under those terms. And finally, they just, um, I think they got sick of me harassing them, to be honest, and they went, oh, what the hell, come over. <laughs> and then I find out I'm the extra, extra patient, you know, I'm patient 71. Like the drug companies don't even know your name. They know your number. They don't know your name. Well, and I think what you're talking about, since this podcast focuses a lot on mental wellness and I deal with a lot of people who are going through the mental and the emotional aspects of things. Um, I think what you're, what you're talking about in, in terms of, of being willing to look at all the options to think outside the box. I, I think even when you're dealing with just trying to, you know, process, you know, emotional trauma or trying to get yourself mentally fit or whatever it may be, it's important to, to, to have, I think in some ways that sense of desperation driving you to say, I want a better life for myself than where I'm at. I'm willing to do whatever I need to do, you know, go get therapy or counseling or get different people around me in my life or whatever it may be. I'm willing to, to do whatever I need to do because I want that end result. I want you know, in your case, physically, I want to survive and I want to, to, to be cured and I want to get well. And so you weren't willing to take no for an answer because you said there's, there's got to be another way. And I think so often we're willing to take certain answers or perspectives as, as being the last answer and saying, oh, well, you know, this, this person or this expert or this relative or you know this voice whoever it was that they said so therefore that's you know that's it and in a lot of ways if you're going to heal emotionally physically mentally you have to be willing to to get outside of that those limits in that box you know yeah absolutely and what has struck me because I I constantly learn about human potential and human you know wellness and mental health and and all of that now because uh you know mental health's all part of the deal it was then it's still it still is now um and why I think it it's you do have to keep pushing these things because every body is so different and how they respond to a certain um, medicine, treatment, all of that sort of stuff. So you might try, you know, a doctor might say, oh, this is, you know, if you go to a doctor and like you've got like very poor mental health or you feel like you've got poor mental health and they go, oh, yeah, go on this pill or um, somebody says, oh, you know, do yoga, do this, do that. That might not be your answer. Mm -hmm. 
and you just have to keep searching. You have to keep searching. I think for mental health, this is me and I'm not an expert in the field, but I just, the best thing to learn is uh, that from, from my perspective is that your thoughts and what your mind is is telling you and what goes over and over again is not necess- it, it's not real most of the time mm-hmm. and i'm i'm a gemini so there's two of me but i kind of separate my i i split my mind in two in terms of like for whatever reason for me the right sides jumble 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 um you know you go on that podcast what if you don't you know you don't know what to say you don't it, it still happens and i've been on many many podcasts I've spoken on many many stages it's just what your mind does when you're trying to take a different direction um and if it's just like if you just come to that understanding okay but this is not necessarily me and it's not necessarily true and just start like thanking your mind okay you're trying to get me safe no matter what you're telling me you're trying to get me safe but I'm going to keep this side of my mind clear Mm -hmm. and I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other Mm -hmm. and I'm going to find the best solution for me to move forward with a better life. You know, um, I'm determined to have a better life and I'm going to find a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly hopeful as you made your way here to the United States for your treatment, it must have also felt like this was your last hope. Did you ever think this wouldn't work or feel afraid that your will to live was simply a form of denying the seemingly inevitable? Yeah, wow, good question. Um, I had a gut feeling that this is what I needed and that I was going to be okay. Um, look, the, the trial was very new. They had a couple the, they had people responding, but they had no data. They didn't know how long, even if you responded. Could have been two months, three months. They didn't know. But they were really hopeful that this immunotherapy was a long-term fix and I just kind of believed that it was. But look, yes, to answer your question, there was times where I just thought, and like my mind was telling me, you know, the monsters are like, what are you doing? You're over here and your children are at home and this could be the last part of your life and you're choosing to spend it away from your children. And then I would have to say, thank you for keeping me safe. I didn't learn that straight away though, by the way. However, for me, this is short-term, and for them, this is short-term pain for long-term gain. Mm-hmm. This My outcome for this is that I'm with them for a lot longer and I just kind of had to keep telling myself. But, yes, of course, there were times my, my mind went to, come on, Julie, no one survives this. Why do you think you're going to be the one? You know, all, all of that sort of stuff. But I just kept going. I just kept going. Your story certainly brings up a valid point in that attitude towards pain and suffering of any sort plays such a huge part in the chances of someone's recovery, be it physical or emotional. How you approach adversity has been proven in studies to drastically alter your odds of overcoming that situation and having a positive outcome. As you were going through your treatments, were you consciously aware of this in any way? And do you feel that that impacted your results at all? Yeah, I absolutely was. I absolutely was aware of that. And I had a mantra, you know, I I would, um, you know, sing some talk or sometimes sing every day. I tried to keep myself really well. There was no way I would have got to Portland if I was really sick from the chemotherapy and stuff. And um, I was very conscious of that. So there was a lot of things, a lot of things I did, but one was like I would say to myself every day or even sing it, go for a walk, go for a run. 
And I would say, I am happy and healthy. All my organs are healed. My body and my organs are healed. I have faith in life. And I said that over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And um, look, I know a lot of people, my sister included, that did a lot of this work and they still didn't make it. So I'm not somebody that's going to stay sit here and say, well, my, pos- my positive mindset, that's why I survived. I believe it was a huge part of keeping me healthy to get me to Portland and to keeping me healthy through the chemotherapy and all that sort of stuff. I really believe that. However, um, I know I needed to get there and get the drug as well. So I'm, I'm not saying that, that that's everything, but I think it's a huge part. And as you said before, it's been proven. It's that it plays a part, you know, in, in scientific studies. of. And I know I've spoken to people that say that, you know, their partner or there's someone heard that, oh, like you haven't, you've got that long to live and they go, oh, okay, and they die six months, nine months, because it gets up here mm-hmm. and they believe it. Mm-hmm. And I just would, I wasn't willing to accept that. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, mentors is actually a neurosurgeon and he deals with a lot of people that have tumors and all kinds of things. And he often talks about the fact that there are some people that come in and they go through an operation or some sort of a treatment process and they may be fully well and healed and everything's taken care of but in their head they still have a cancer or that tumor or that whatever it is and and they still are sick in their head in their mind as far as their approach to life and other people could be on their last few weeks of life and they're living more fully in their mind and their attitude than they ever did when they were fully healthy, you know, and so much of yeah. it is mental, you know, regardless of what the results are. So much of it is mental in terms of, um, you know, how we, how we approach. Oh, hundred percent. I, I think, I think a hundred percent, you know, I think when, so, you know, prior to what happened to me, I was, so fit and healthy and I didn't feel sick even when it happened I mean I I had a brain tumor I had to have a brain tumor removed and you know that knocked me around a little bit you know for a few days like I had 16 my whole head had staples and but I just didn't want to be that person I just didn't want to be sick so badly that I even managed to stay well while I was sick if that makes sense and yeah the whole time I was on treatment even in Portland like I would go running and and I I think it really helps you know not not everyone as I say I'm not here here to say god just have a really great mental attitude you, you can be you know but it absolutely for me was like a, a huge part of it yeah a lot of people that listen to this podcast as well as the content I put out um, are people that have a strong spiritual faith and and a relationship with God and your recovery certainly would qualify as a real life miracle in a lot of ways um, what role if any did um, prayer and faith play in your fight against cancer you know people that you knew personally or yourself yeah yeah, absolutely. As I say, um, as I said earlier, like I would pray. You know, I, I call it I call it the universe, which is my God. Um and absolutely called called on that, you know, that that that's something that's bigger than you, that's that's stronger than you, that you know, um I always look up, you know. Are you up there? But um, yeah, played huge. As I said, I promised that I would do all these other things if I survived, and um, 
And I have done that. And I've done that with the help of my faith as well and, and the health of dealing with my mind because I could have given up, you know. You can't write it. You know, when I started to write my book, I would get this, who's going to read your book? Like you can't even, who's to, how do you, you know, why can you write a book? Who are you to write a book? Who, who do you do? All this kind of stuff. And it's like, sorry, you can come along with me because I made a promise and I'm going to do it. And I did it, and and which leads me to so many other things that, as you mentioned before, we think we can't do, mm-hmm. and or you might get a knock a knock on the door, or that's what I call it, but you know thoughts in your head or something really strong that you should be doing something, and I believe you absolutely should be doing that thing if you get that thought over and over again, you are capable of doing that thing. Yes, you have to look outside, get the resources, put one foot in front of the other, but I don't believe you get thoughts about some really good stuff that you should be achieving if you're not capable of achieving it, Mm -hmm. you know. As somebody who is taking care of an ailing parent and also an alien grandparent and and knows what it's like to go through um, just the emotional toll of worrying about somebody that is maybe or maybe not going to survive. Your family had to make some incredible sacrifices in order to help you win this fight. Your husband was by your side the whole time. Your daughters had to be okay with you living a whole world away for an extended period of time. Um, Sometimes I think we can get so focused on the patient that sometimes the family members, um, both what they're suffering as well as their support can get kind of lost in the whole story. Um, how important are the people around us and, and, you know, what we make of as community at a time of crisis like that? Just so important. Um, so important. I mean, for starters, the inspiration to survive. But you're absolutely right in terms of what they have to go through. And, like, that cut me to the core of what my kids had to go through. However, I somehow had to really, really deal with that in a in a in a way that I just had to keep telling myself but you'll be there for them later you'll be there for them for a long time you're not with them now life's tough for them and you know I I and and my husband who'd be like trying to come back and forth from Australia to America to look after me you know his wife I mean I could have had weeks to live over there, like anything could have turned. Like, the, you know, my doctor told, told us that. Um, and he, it was just horrific, you know, and financially his business went down the gurgler. You know, my, my survival really, really cost us. But you know what? We're still together and, we're, and we've been through a lot and we're strong. And my girls are very strong ladies. They're very strong humans now and they just say, thanks, Mum, for doing what you did. You know, one daughter used to ring up, so like my, my husband would be flying back over to me because I'd be having scans or I'd be getting results, you know, which is just horrific. You wait around and have a scan, wait for them to say, oh, I'm really sorry, you know, everything's progressed, nothing more we can do. So he'd come and then my daughter, who was like 16 years old, you know, and say, Mom, you told me you wouldn't take Dad back. And I'd be like, oh, God, because she didn't want to be home on her own looking after herself. And, of course, she didn't. And this carry on, she was in her final year at school mm-hmm. and her mum was in a clinical trial on the other side of the world trying to stay alive, like just really tough stuff. But, yeah, they are my heroes. 
They are my heroes. That's beautiful. What surprised me in reading about your story is that this treatment process and this journey toward healing actually took a long, long time. You were at this close to, I think, five years. Yeah. What did that teach you about healing being on its own timetable and how some good things take a while to come through fruition in life? Yes, it was a long time. However, you touched on something before about the kind of not some people can even be rid of something and still think they've got it while other people have got something and won't buy into they'll be still trying to kind of enjoy their life or whatever so because I was a front runner and I was one of the first they didn't know they just kept telling me that my and I was in treatment back in Australia over there back in Australia I'd go for a visit and they'd say your disease I'd have a doctor and they'd say your disease is stable and I'd say I don't have a disease and they'd look at me like I was some sort of crazy woman but I decided I didn't have a disease anymore even though they were telling me I, I did and it was stable and I finally found out and this is all because of study and what they start learning that I just had scar tissue it was just scar tissue I I hadn't had a disease for a long time but it, I had to live with the fact that I did however I I just told myself I didn't hmm. and I didn't it turns out I didn't it was just scar tissue but I just kind of felt like it was gone from my body I just did and then yeah I find out that it was so and I think until you got that confirmation though there probably was a certain amount of patience and trust you had to have in continuing to keep that optimism and and hopefulness alive and and letting the process play itself out until that confirmation and I think especially when we're dealing with things that aren't easily fixable you know in our modern world where we like things to be solved immediately um it can be hard to just stay with it for you know weeks months years and keep hoping and praying for a certain outcome or result or whatever um and be patient you know because not everything is fixed overnight and sometimes no. when you're dealing with a crisis of some kind it you know all you want is to just have it go away but at the same time sometimes you got to sit in it for a while before you get to, before you get there you have to let that um crisis teach you something before you you yeah, know move uh, your way through yeah, it you do you do and you you kind of um like live in a parallel world yeah. because there is this thing hanging over your head and even though i decided i didn't have it and i really really believe that of course your mind still says well, hang on, they're telling you, you're, you know, you've still got a disease and, you know, it's stable. And so, you know, you, you can't run away from yourself. However, I didn't let it rule my life. I would still have fun, you know, do whatever I could to enjoy my life. I just didn't. You know, it was more other people than me, you know. Mm -hmm. Other people would be, oh, how are you? Oh, you know, poor thing sort of. And I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. And I really believe that they didn't. Well, I know they didn't think I was going to be fine. And um, here I am. But, you, yeah, exactly. You do have to sit there as I say parallel like yes yeah, sit in it but don't stop your life do not stop your life you know the best thing in life is giving like having having fun and joy and I love music and stuff but the best thing in life is just giving 
something to someone else, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I live my life about now. For so many of us, it often takes a tragedy of some sort to wake us up from our daily apathy and get us to truly start living, like you're saying, relationally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Why do you think that is? And how important is it for us to not wait until we're dying or something awful has happened in order for us to start living fully and abundantly where we're at? Yeah, well, if I could teach people one thing (laughs) that absolutely would be it and uh, I think I do write at the back of my book don't wait till you think you're dying you know someone tells you you're dying to start truly living and for me it's not that I wasn't living you know I had kids I played sport but I, I I wasn't living to my full potential and I know so many of us are not Mm -hmm. and you know, nobody wants to go out, you know, you, you read these stories about people who get to the end of their life and there's a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. I don't know if you've heard about that book or not. And um, it's about somebody that worked in palliative care for a long time. Mm. And so they talked to many, many people who were on their last legs and the the biggest, I think number one, was people regret that they didn't live their life on their own terms and Mm. do the things they wanted to do and reach their potential that's the biggest regret so who wants who wants to get to that stage and and have to say that you know and for all of us it, it comes in in different forms like it doesn't have to be anything huge like oh I want to go off and write a best selling book or I want to get on stage, I want to do this. It just could be, you know what, I really want to give more time to charity. Um, I I want to get, you know, really fit so I can run a marathon. Whatever it is, you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's not said. I don't want to say that in a scary way, but now's the time. Mm-hmm. now's the time start planning now start start doing that thing now because I did have this underlying thing you know oh you know I'll do that down the track I always had this thing I wanted to start a women's website and you know and I, and I didn't do it um, because it was always later and then there came a time where there wasn't going to be later apparently and it's not a good feeling it's not a good feeling earlier you were talking about um bold promises about the promise that you made to your girls that you were going to find a way to live about uh, the promises that you you know kind of put out there to uh, the heavens to be able to say you know if i'm able to survive these are the things i i'm going to do with my life um why is it powerful to make some big goals and bold promises in our lives? You know, I think a lot of us kind of hold back from that because we think that that's too daring or too brave, too bold. But yep. why why does that matter? It, it it really matters. And if you look up goals versus promises, I think it's, the actual statistics is if you set a goal, I think it's, oh, I should have got the statistics on this, but I think it's like something like 30-something percent of people will achieve their goals. If somebody makes a promise that they will do something, it's like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So therein lay the difference because you're promising and the promises to yourself are just as important as the promises to others. So if you say, I think very long and hard now, if I'm going to make a promise to myself and if I make it, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. There's no no way I'm not. So, yeah, 
it's it's so important. So you know, I say choose choose a promise. Prom promise yourself something. Promise someone else something. Um, statistics are you're gonna you're gonna achieve it. You're gonna do it. Mm. Well, and I think promises carry almost more commitment. You know, goals are just yeah. sort of you know benchmarks that we say okay i'd like to get this done or that done or go here or see that or whatever but you know when you promise something like you said to yourself or to somebody else um there's a level of commitment and follow through that comes with that you know that's why um i know in my family you know when i was growing up we we're very careful throwing around that fra phrase i promise yeah. Because yes. sometimes parents will say, oh, well, da -da 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 -da, I promise or, you know, promise me that you're and sometimes it can just roll off the tongue without it meaning something. And I yep. think the more you understand the importance of that, of saying, hey, if you're going to commit to something to yourself or to somebody else and put that in that category of promises like you're talking about, then it better mean something and you better commit and follow through and do all that you can within your power to accomplish yeah. that and and to to be true to that in some way absolutely so you obviously grew up in a family like mine so um because it was like you make a prom you promised that you promised and like yeah mm -hmm. it, it was big it was huge and um as you say it can get like thrown around like it's just a word, but uh, not not in my books. And I think um, or your or yours. So the more we we think about that, and yeah, don't throw it around. But no, when you do, it's exciting because you're gonna yeah you're gonna follow through with it. I mean, my promise to live. You know, I excused myself that I'm going to try my very, very best at this. But, you know, if I don't, if I can't keep that promise, my girls are going to know what I've done and my husband and my family, I've done everything. Um, so I excused myself there. But nowadays it's just like, yeah, I often do this online in bed. Okay, you're going to promise this to yourself? It's like, oh. Okay, you know, or no, I'm not ready. I'll let, I'll even say that to myself. Like, I'm not ready to make that promise right now. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm ready, I'm ready, and I'm I'm doing it no matter what. Yeah. Earlier, you briefly touched on the concept of dancing with the mind monsters. Um, can you explain that just a little bit? Sure. My I passion I love talking about this so when I was going through what I was going through as you can imagine my mind was going crazy all over the place and then when it was time that I found this trial in America I knew that's where I wanted to be um, focused on that everything was going a little nuts in my mind and I thought I'm going to have to compartmentalise this, otherwise I'm going to be, I don't know if you call it, in the, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital, I'm going to be in a mental ward or something because I just won't be able to, you know, handle all of this stuff. So I sort of separated things into, so I had like what I call, I don't know if you've ever seen the kids' movie Monsters, Inc., but in, in Monsters, Inc., there was like, there was a mean monster, but there was a nice monster and lots of cute little monsters. So I don't know why, but I just modelled my mind on that. And so I had like a, a like a mean monster, a kind monster and a, um, what do you call it, like just a logical kind of monster that was, trying to help me go through the logistics of everything and so we just there was a dance going on and then I the, the mean one you know would say to me you know why are you going to America and leaving your kids no one survived this why do you think you can and I would have to say like 
I at this point when it first started, I didn't know to say thank you or anything like that. I hadn't learnt the dance very well. I was in the early stages, so I'd say, go away, you know, get out of my get out of my head. I've since learnt you can't fight with your own mind, it'll keep fighting back. So mm-hmm. but I didn't know that in the beginning. So that's what I had going on there. You're gonna die, blah, blah, blah. And then the nice one would just keep saying to me, come on, girl, you know, come on, girl, you can do this, like keep going, keep going, put one foot in front of the other, like, and, you know, come on, you know, encourage me to go to America. And then the logistical one or the uh, sensible one, I think I call it when I write about it in the book, would talk about money, you know, all the really boring, logical, being away from your children that are, studying and doing their last year at school and how's that all going to happen and so it became this it became this dance and I realized that the mean one was only trying to keep me safe so we became friends in the end not to say it's still to this minute to this day doesn't come back in to try and you know keep me safe in my comfort zone but I know how to deal with that now and yeah, and then there was the logical one and 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 still to this day, I mean, I think we all have that. And then you've got the, you know, you've got the um the friendly, nice, encouraging part of you that just goes, come on, girl. I mean, I can imagine you in starting a podcast and all of that, you would have had thoughts in your mind of, you know, it, it's putting yourself out there. It's mm-hmm. Or taking yourself out of your comfort zone you're gonna have it all the time and it goes back to it goes back to cavemen it goes back to protecting ourselves the mind hasn't really evolved from that it thinks when you go out of your comfort zone you're literally going to die you're going to get eaten it doesn't know that no 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 it's okay it's not that i'm not going to die and um it, it's all part of it. it's like evolution hasn't really caught up with us and uh I'll kind of go one step further and say I think we all, if we can all learn a little bit about this mind management and uh, neural pathways and all that sort of stuff that, you know, not now or tomorrow but in a few thousand years we we might change that, you know, we might change that for the future because um, the mind will start to learn that it doesn't have to hammer us and try to keep us safe all the time when we're not really going out of the cave we're just you know we're just we're just trying to be the best version of ourselves we're trying to evolve you know if that makes sense yeah um when you look back on your journey how did this battle with cancer change you as a person and what did it show you about our ability as human beings to grow Yeah, definitely. I don't, you know, I don't think it necessarily changed me as Julie, mum, wife, friend. I was going to say husband, <laughs> wife, friend. No, I, I'm still that, but it's certainly opened my mind to, as I probably mentioned before human potential what we're capable of that we don't think we are to then push through those barriers and just keep you know keep going putting one foot in front of the other and and then all of a sudden you turn around you go oh my god I did that Mm -hmm. I did that you know um for me the most important thing is inspiring others and sharing hope with others. Hence, I hope I'm, I'm doing this with you right now. Um, but, yeah, my life's totally changed, totally changed um, in terms of what I do now. Like I, I, I spe- I'm, a, I'm a speaker I'm, um, and, and just getting messages from people who I've spoken to or whoever read the book, they'd say, thank you. I've literally had people say, you saved my life. Mm. 
um, that might be a patient that's looked outside the square for treatment, as we talked about before. Um, I've had a couple of people that have read the book and felt quite depressed for one reason or another and just gone, okay, that's it. Got up and enrolled in a uni course or just, it's just sparked something and just the honour of being able to, to do that in the world is just such a, a privilege, you know. It, make, it makes me want to cry because I just think, wow, it's, it, it makes sense of why I went through the suffering I went through, you know, and that, the, that my family went through so much as well. And um, to just, for me to just have survived that and do nothing with it and just, you know, carry on, nothing to see here, would have been a travesty, I think an absolute travesty. Are you ever worried that the cancer will come back and you'll be right back where you started? And if not, then how do you combat that inner voice of fear that says, what if? You know what? I'm not. And I say that hand on heart. And I say that, look, I could be struck by anything. Mm-hmm. You know, cancer, anything, another cancer, I don't know. But as far as melanoma, no, I'm not. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because a professor told me. <laughs> but also this this immunotherapy that I was lucky enough to be a, a part of is um it actually teaches, it doesn't, it's not like a drug that fights the cancer. It's a drug that teaches your immune system to look out for the cancer mm. and seek and destroy before it can go anywhere. And I believe in that concept and that theory. And uh, my, you know, the professor that treated me is just one Australian of the year. I was like, she's just amazing. And she basically said to me recently, you don't need to come back and see me anymore. Like about a year ago, you're you're done. So, no, I'm not afraid of that anymore. If people want to reach out to you or read your book or get any information or contact with you, what are some good ways that they can be able to find you and, and read more about your story? Sure. So my book is on um, Booktopia. I don't know if that's an American. That might just be an Australian. Um, however, Amazon. Okay. They can, yep, they can buy the book on Amazon. They can reach out to me via my website. They can send me a message or like I'm on Instagram as patient71. Yeah. So any of those, any of those platforms, you know, I talk to people all the time. And I love talking to people. Wonderful. I love helping people. Lastly, if someone's listening today who is facing tough news of their own or is trying to find a way to live again after a personal tragedy, what words of hope or encouragement would you say to them? Look, you know, hope is, for me, a beautiful word. I don't believe in false hope. I think hope is hope and facing it, like if it's a diagnosis, I believe there's so much going on in the world that if you just hang on to that hope, believing that that the world is really changing quick, especially in the, in the cancer field and um, there's stuff coming out now that's just, you know, it's cure the you know the big the good c word people are and i'm an example actually being cured now you can be for stage four and come back you know in some cases and yeah just coming back from tragedies and and i'm well experienced as at that as well um you know i've just i just lost my sister in june Mm -hmm. and that, you know, she had breast cancer for a long, 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 long time, like 25 years. Hmm. Um, 
and I believed this when I was sick as well, that life is for the living and while you're alive there's hope and just keep keep looking at the sunshine and just keep keep a positive attitude and help someone else wherever you can. That's beautiful. That's what I would say. Thank you again for being here, Julie. Um, it's been a blessing to have you join us today and share your story. Thank you so much. I've loved it. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to all you listeners for tuning in today as well and for listening to Julie Randall's story. I hope you've been uplifted by what she had to share and that you can take away some encouraging truths that will help and strengthen you in your own journey. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Open to Grace Alaska, on X at Open to Grace 2015, as well as on MeWe, True Social, and Grow. You can also check out my blog at www.graceopens.blogspot.com. I'll see you next time, and until then, keep your peace, and remember that grace will always meet you where you are.